You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a Ph.D. holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I'm extremely pleased to have Casey Sherman with me on the show today. He is a New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal best-selling author. His 2009 book, The Finest Hours, was adapted into the 2016 film of the same name. Among the best-selling true crime books he's written, Hunting Whitey, all about notorious Massachusetts mob boss Whitey Bulger, and Helltown, which documents the Tony Costa murders. And he's got a brand new book out about a notorious Hollywood death that we have talked about in passing more than once on the show, but never in detail. It's all about Lana Turner and the demise of her boyfriend, Johnny Stampanato. It is called A Murder in Hollywood, the untold story of Tinseltown's most shocking crime. Welcome to the show. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me, Eric. Appreciate it. So there are two storylines in your book that run parallel for a while and then intersect. One is about Lana Turner and her journey from schoolgirl to film star and all of the really incredible and sometimes traumatic things that happen to her along the way. And the other is all about Mickey Cohen and his rise from newspaper boy to Los Angeles's underworld mob boss. And then those two worlds collide. This must have been fun to research and write. It's a who's who of, of both old Hollywood and, and some of the more notorious gangsters in American history. That's right. I think anybody that picks this book up is going to recognize, you know, probably uh, 20 or even 30 well-known figures from both organized crime and Hollywood. And I, and I chose, you know, to focus on Mickey Cohen and uh, Lana Turner and really, you know, keep them on parallel pr tracks in terms of how they arrived in L.A. or Hollywood, their ascension into, you know, the uh, ultimately powerful figures that they became, and ultimately that, that collision course that you just described. And it was interesting to me, um, 
I had only known about this story in passing as well. I'd read about it. I'd seen the film L.A. Confidential. There's a brief scene that uh, incorporates Lana and Johnny Stampinato in it. I didn't know much about it, um, but I was familiar with the you know, long-held narrative about what happened on Good Friday 1958 inside Lana Turner's bedroom in a Beverly Hills mansion. And my agent at the time, um, Peter Steinberg, sent a, sent to me an article and he said, uh, you know, take a look at this. Is there anything new that you can add, you know, to this story? So I said, give me about a week or two and I'll see if, uh, you know, the uh, well-told story that's been out there for 60 years is what happened that night, or is there a deeper, darker story to tell? And I found out that uh, the latter was true. Absolutely. So let's just uh, jump right into Lana Turner's life, if you don't mind. She was born Julia Jean Turner in Idaho in 1921. She was known as Judy. Would you tell us about her growing up years and the death of her father? Sure. Well, I think the death and the murder of her father really set her uh, on a on a path of uh, of bad relationships through the you know the rest of her life, so to speak. But you know, Lana Turner, for your audience who may not know who Lana Turner was, she was basically Marilyn Monroe before Marilyn Monroe. In fact, Marilyn was a huge fan of Lana Turner, copied her look, copied her lifestyle and, and created her own you know, career that ultimately eclipsed Lana's by you know, utilizing some of Lana's tricks, so to speak. Um, but imagine, you know, if you will, Jessica Chastain or Jennifer Lawrence ultimately you know, involved in a scandal like this. That's how big this story was back in 1958. And I think you know, going back into Lana's very troubled childhood, her father was a, a grifter and a hustler um, in Idaho, and then the family moved to San Francisco. And uh, the father did not have enough money to buy Lana Turner a bicycle a red bicycle that she wanted. And so he went out and found a, a, a card game uh, somewhere in a bad neighborhood and ultimately, uh, you know, probably won that card game and then uh, was robbed and beaten to death for his winnings. So Lana, at a very young age, did not have a male father figure in her life or a male figure of any kind. So after that uh, unsolved murder, which is still unsolved today, Lana and her mother um, hitched a ride to Hollywood. And it's your classic Hollywood story. They were literally dropped off, you know, at the corner of uh, Hollywood Boulevard. And Lana's um, first impression of Hollywood is that big Hollywood land sign. And that's what the Hollywood sign was at that time. It was called Hollywood Land because it really was there to promote a, uh, a real estate development in the Hollywood Hills. And Lana never thought she would be an actor or an actress someday or a movie star. She went to Hollywood High School and uh, one day... She was thirsty, so she went across the street, found a soda shop, sat on a stool, and had a Coca-Cola. And across the stool was a Hollywood talent scout uh, and uh, the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. And he discovered her, um, and her life changed at that moment. And not only did her life change, Eric, but the lives of thousands of other young girls all across America changed that day because... They believed that if Lana could be discovered, uh, you know, at a, at a soda fountain in Hollywood, so could they. So they cobbled together what money they had. They got bus fare, they got train fare, and they went out to, uh, to find their dreams. Most times those dreams were never found. 
but Lana found hers. And one of the things that really interested me about her early background, Eric, is once she was discovered and um, at 15 years old and was immediately sexualized by the Hollywood studios. She had matured, you know, well uh, earlier than a lot of other young actors at the time. And she was a, you know, a, a compatriot of Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and some of these iconic actors that we still remember today. She was right in that, in that group. And the movie studios were cranking out family entertainment films, you know, one after the other. And they were forcing these young child actors to work 70 hour work weeks. And they, uh, you know, oftentimes they were keeping them awake with amphetamines. Um, they had you know, put them on a diet of chicken broth and cigarettes so they wouldn't gain weight. So they were really, you know, uh, I would say mentally and physically abusing these young actors at a, at a very early age. Right. And young Lana is pursued by older men, including actors Errol Flynn and Ronald Reagan. That's right. And, you know, that it struck me that there was a, you know, we always know that there's a double standard out there, but it was really so apparent in Hollywood, especially in the 1930s and 1940s, where you had a 15, 16 year old actress named Lana Turner, who was being told by studio executives to be on the arm of, you know, a future president, Ronald Reagan, as they were trying to push him out as a leading man and uh, and, and get his notoriety uh, out there in the Hollywood press. So here's Ronald Reagan, who's 28 years old at the time, walking around and sexualizing a young underage girl and nobody batted an eye. And Errol Flynn, you know, the big screen Robin Hood did the same thing and, you know, sexually abused Lana Turner um, when she was an underage, uh, you know, teenager. And again, you know, these men were allowed to, you know, continue on with their careers and their careers were not abjectly uh, affected by it. But anytime, you know, Lana stepped out of line, you know, she was threatened with uh, the, the cancellation of her contract at MGM Studios. So, what what is the film role that puts her on the map? Well, I think the, she had a very small role in a in a in a film noir uh, where she was dubbed the Sweater Girl. That was her first role, and, and her only action in that in that uh, particular film was to wear a tight knit sweater and uh, you know walk up and down the set, which she did, and uh, you know ultimately sparked. Um, you know, this frenzy of, of young males who wanted to know more about her. So she was uh, placed in a lot of Mickey Rooney films as a young actor, but her biggest, you know, breakout role would have to be The Postman Always Rings Twice with John Garfield. And that launched her career and that, you know, made her the queen of Hollywood because as she was getting notoriety and building a career in Hollywood, you know, Joan Crawford ruled that town. And Joan Crawford was always looking over her shoulder at Lana Turner and seeing her as a threat, not somebody to mentor and, um, you know, uh, uh, help uh, in any way. But Lana was young and beautiful and Joan had been young and beautiful and uh, wanted to maintain, you know, what look she had and keep that crown of um, the Queen of Hollywood as, as long as she could. But when uh, Lana starred in uh, The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is a very sultry film noir in the 1940s about a young woman who's married and falls in love with a drifter and they concoct a plot to kill uh, the young woman's husband uh, as they you know, want to go off together and, and fall madly in love. 
Well, Lana Turner stars in that film, and then she takes over the city. Yeah, you, you write that she was shocked when she saw herself on the big screen for the first time. She didn't understand why the way she was walking in her performance was so appealing. To well, that, she didn't understand that her innocence was lost at that moment. Um, you know, when she was on the big screen and ogled by not only, you know, moviegoers, but, you know, studio executives, they all preyed on her. And again, she was a young underage, you know, girl at the time who lost her innocence very early. And that's figuratively speaking, but that's also, you know, very actual that she had lost her virginity when she was 15 years old, uh, you know, to a, a Hollywood actor. And then other Hollywood actors just, you know, continued that uh, to abuse her and uh, kind of use her for what, what she had. Yeah. So Lana, still very young, falls for the band leader, Artie Shaw. He, he takes advantage of her. That does not go well for her. Right. And, you know, Artie Shaw for your audience. And, you know, I don't know how old you are, but I'm in my 50s. So imagine, you know, Artie Shaw was the Ed Sharon of the 1940s, hugely popular and wildly famous. Um, and uh, Lana uh, married him. You know, I was kind of forced to do that on a whim. And that's, again, one of the things that I like to expose in this book as well. If Lana had uh, feelings for, you know, anyone, she couldn't just go out with them or, you know, have them as a, as a boyfriend, so to speak. That was outside the social mores at the time. If she, you know, wanted to have an intimate relationship with anybody, she would have to marry them. And that's certainly what she did with Artie Shaw. But uh, very early on in their marriage, she realized that Artie Shaw wasn't who he claimed to be, you know, in the bedroom or in the home. And he abused her, you know, physically and emotionally. And, um, and that's, uh, you know, one of the tragic relationships that I shed light on in this book, because ultimately this book, in my opinion, Eric, is a book about empowerment. You know, it's about, all, you know, a woman who has just gone through bad relationship and abusive relationship one after the other until there comes a time where she's forced to take her life back. And she does. Yeah. So I'd like to switch to Mickey Cohen for a bit. Way, way back, we did something about him on the show. But if you don't mind refreshing our memories a bit, would you tell us about his beginnings and later interactions with gangsters like Oni Madden and Al Capone? Sure. Well, you know, Mickey Cohen was born in New York City um, in a Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. And uh, ultimately, uh, his mother moved the family to Los Angeles. Uh, to a place called Boyle Heights, which uh, had a, a you know a large Jewish neighborhood at the time, and that's where Mickey grew up. Uh, worked in his mother's grocery store. His mother was a kind of a, a an amateur you know gangster herself. She was uh, selling moonshine out of the back of her uh, grocery store, and I think that uh, you know gave Mickey the taste for uh, quick cash very early on. And um, Mickey got in a lot of trouble when he was a kid. He was a paper boy turned flyweight boxer, got in some trouble and had to ultimately leave LA for a long period of time. And that was his, that was his organized crime education. He was always fascinated by the biggest gangsters in the world at the time. Al Capone, you mentioned Oni Madden, uh, Mad Dog in, in New York City. And these gangsters took young Mickey under their wing because Mickey was fearless and Mickey was tough. 
And Mickey ultimately, you know, got in, into some scrapes in New York City, Chicago, uh, Cleveland, but ultimately came back to his uh, hometown of Los Angeles and started to build a career in organized crime there. But when he got back, Bugsy Siegel was already running things in L.A. and Hollywood. But Bugsy took Mickey under his wing and really kind of schooled him on how to be, quote unquote, a classy gangster. And Mickey learned a lot from Bugsy Siegel. So, yeah, organized crime in L.A. was similar to to organized crime in other cities across the country in the sense that these organizations were profiting from prostitution, gambling, all the regular rackets. But what made L.A. special, right? What was Hollywood? Yeah. It offered guys like Mickey Cohen whole new rackets. And I think, you know, you've got the movie industry ecosystem and the organized crime ecosystem. And they're all, you know, each is supporting the other. And Los Angeles wasn't really a big town at that time. Certainly when Mickey Cohen was rising up in the underworld ranks, I mean, uh, you know, once you got past Sunset Boulevard, um, there really wasn't any Hollywood outside the city limits. Uh, And I think that was interesting because a lot of different uh, police departments um, kind of operated, you know, um, on their own. They weren't centrally located. They didn't uh, cooperate with each other often. And I think the gangsters took advantage of that. And that being said, Eric, there were some wild organized crime exploits, gangster shootouts, bombings. I mean, you name it, anybody that's been to LA or Hollywood, if you walk down, you know, the Sunset Strip, you know, I can point out probably four or five, you know, locales where Mickey Cohen either either killed somebody or almost lost his life in a shootout. Do do you do tours? (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, yeah, uh, for friends and family, for sure. And and that goes back to a lot of the time I did spend in L.A., you know, kind of gumshoeing this case. Anytime I write a book, I want to look, touch and feel it. As, as much as I can. And granted, you know, these um, stories that I read about in the murder in Hollywood happened decades ago, but their their ghosts are still alive in L.A. And I wanted to just embed myself with the culture, go back to some of the locales that are still around the Hotel Roosevelt, for example, um, the Cafe Formosa. You know, these are places that the Lana Turners of the world and the Mickey Cohens of the world socialized. Right, right. Yeah. So you cover a good amount of L.A.'s crime history from the 30s to the 50s in your book. Uh, Bugsy Siegel takes Mickey Cohen under his wing. Siegel, of course, is murdered in 1947. Cohen then begins to consolidate power. And one of the things he does to make money is he sets up Hollywood starlets on dates with his gangster underlings. Can you talk about why he did that? Sure. It was a very lucrative racket where he would, um, you know, try to expose and extort some of Hollywood's biggest names at the time. You know, closeted gay actors, um, you know, who couldn't be seen in public with the people that they loved had to, um, you know, have illicit affairs with Playboys, hustlers, male gigolos, and, you know, Mickey Cohn was right there with a film camera or a telephoto lens, 
gathering evidence uh, that he would ultimately use against those actors. And he did the same thing with many actresses as well. And that ultimately leads to, you know, what happened to Lana Turner. You know, a lot of people believe that Lana Turner and Johnny Stampanato somehow just, you know, fell madly in love. Really wasn't the case at all. Lana Turner had a target on her back uh, by Mickey Cohen and uh, Mickey Cohen used uh, his underling Johnny Stampanato as the arrow he, he needed to penetrate that target. And we will be right back. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week, pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout. In each meal, dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash Notorious50 and use code Notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code Notorious50 at factormeals.com slash Notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. And we have returned. One of the things I found interesting, and, and I can't remember if I had read this before or not, is that Mickey Cohen had a brief fling with Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia. And that's quite an, an intersection uh, between one of the city's most notorious gangsters and one of the city's most notable murders. There's so many interesting intersections in this in this book, you know, so many historical figures that crossed paths, you know, in Hollywood at the time, which was, you know, one of the reasons that I was so excited to write about this story, you know, writing about, you know, old Hollywood and, you know, the Hollywood of the 40s and 50s at its most glamorous and all of these notorious gangsters that I had read about and heard about for decades and wondered if they, you know, shared the same breath and, and you know, and, and, uh, and they certainly did. Yeah, one of those intersections happens when one of Lana Turner's boyfriends, uh, he, he was an attorney named Greg Boutzer. He gets into a bit of trouble with Mickey Cohen during a dinner. Jackie Gleason and, and Martha Ray happen to be there as well. Would you talk about Boutzer, his relationship with Lana Turner, and maybe a little bit about that dinner too? Sure. Well, you know, Boutzer was you know, one of Lana Turner's true friends. She didn't have many real good male friends, but Boutzer uh, was certainly that to her. They had dated very early in Lana's career when Lana was underage, but uh, Boutzer was always very protective of Lana. And Boutzer also represented a lot of, uh, you know, Hollywood's biggest stars or rising stars at the time. And he was out one night at one of Mickey's clubs with a young Jackie Gleason uh, before the Honeymooners and Martha Ray, you know, the so-called big mouth, a comedian who uh, entertained the troops during World War II and was very famous in their own right, in her own right, rather. And they had a good old time uh, at the restaurant and uh, uh, Boutzer at the end of the night uh, tried to pay with a uh, with a check. And, uh, you know, Mickey Cohen had never seen that done before anywhere. He didn't know what, a, you know, a, a cashier's check even looked like. And he got very offended and very angry uh, because they were drunk and being, uh, um, you know, silly in his club. And, and Mickey, to his credit, said, look, I, I can't pay my staff with a check. I need cash. And uh, Boutzer recognized that Mickey was threatening him at the time and said, you come to the studio where Boutzer had a, an office because he represented so many actors tomorrow and I'll hand you some cash. And then, um, you know, Jackie Gleason, of course, you know, had some wisecracks and got a little mouthy with Mickey. And Mickey did not care who anybody was in Hollywood. The biggest stars in Hollywood at the time, they all kind of bowed down to the five foot four inch Mickey Cohen. So he was threatening Jackie Gleason with a, a severe beating if he didn't leave um, <laughs> Mickey's club that night. And I think uh, Jackie Gleason was lucky he did. Right, right. And he wants his money. He uh, marches into Boutzer's office. Yeah, he marches onto the studio lot and everybody you know, gives him a wide berth because they know Mickey Cohen's coming. 
And, um, you know, sure enough, Mickey doesn't just threaten. Mickey makes good on all of his promises and enters Boutzer's office and demands the cash. And fortunately for Boutzer, he had the cash on him and uh, the uh, his debt was settled, at least for that night. <laughs> right. So one of Lana's early relationships is with a man named Steve Crane. And this on the, the timeline is before Bugsy Siegel uh, bites it. Siegel actually warned Lana's studio that that Crane was not an honorable man. His intentions were not good. It's interesting you bring that up because, again, you know, people like Bugsy Siegel had the ear of all the studio uh, heads like Louis B. Mayer at MGM. So he could just call over to the studio head because, you know, Louis B. Mayer, no doubt, owed Bugsy Siegel, you know, thousands of dollars in unpaid gambling debts. And Bugsy Siegel said, look at, uh, you know, your rising star is, is dating kind of a lowlife wannabe gangster named Stephen Crane. Now, Stephen Crane introduced himself to Lana Turner and uh, passed himself off as an heir to a tobacco uh, fortune in Indiana. And Lana didn't know um, otherwise. And Lana was very taken by Stephen Crane and they fell, fall, they do fall madly in love. Um, and then, uh, you know, Lana realizes too late because she's already married to the guy and she's, she's pregnant that he isn't who he claimed to be. His, his, his um, fortune in Indiana, his tobacco fortune is nothing more than a two bit pool hall uh, in a, in a podunk town in Indiana. And um, that just shows you it's another example of how men in Lana's life abused her financially, physically, and emotionally. Right, right. And to make things even worse, he was already married. He was already married. And, you know, that was uh, a situation. And for those who want to, you know, jump into that part of the story, certainly read the book. But it's it was, again, uh, a shock to Lana's system. Um, and also almost cost Lana her career with the studio. You know, one of the things that to me is even more explosive than the Crane relationship is that Lana was under, you know, had a strict morality clause with her, uh, with her contract. She was dating a, um, an African-American jazz player in New York City, and she was being followed by the FBI because the FBI, you know, uh, did not, certainly did not uh, appreciate uh, mixed relationships or interracial relationships, and an agent put together a report in New York, gave it over to J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI, who sent it to Louis B. Mayer, and poor Lana, who was just, you know, dating somebody that she liked, uh, almost lost her job because, um, according to Louis B. Mayer, that jazz player did not have the right skin. Did Hoover continue to follow her through her entire career? Was he keeping tabs on oh, Hoover? Hoover loved Hollywood. You know, I mean, this was, you know, he, Hoover had so many fetishes, but I think Hollywood was one of his biggest fetishes. Anything that he could get, you know, in terms of dirt on the biggest stars or politicians at the time, he certainly would. You know, no, no matter that his own personal life was a, you know, uh, was a, a, a bunch of smoke and mirrors, if you will. You know, he was a closeted homosexual and, you know, uh, certainly didn't... Uh, um, 
appreciate anybody else that had similar relationships or relationships that were considered, you know, outside the social mores of the 1940s and 1950s. So here you have, you know, sexual harassment, you've got racism, you've got, um, you know, um, certainly uh, uh, homophobia. They're all, they're all, you know, at play here in many times in Lana's life. He was basically doing the same thing Cohen was doing, <laughs> uh, setting people up and, and blackmailing them. In, in yeah, he was the FBI director and he did it uh, to maintain power and to control people. You know, Cohen did it to maintain power as well, but uh, he also had a financial um, concern there. So he was looking to extort, you know, as much money from these Hollywood stars as he could. Yeah. So one of the, the few positive things that comes out of Lana's tumultuous relationship with Crane is that they had a daughter together, Cheryl. That's correct. You know, Lana's only child. Uh, she was, you know, she had many pregnancies and uh, they were never brought to term uh, because she lost them because of some biological uh, issues that she was having. But uh, Cheryl Crane is somebody that uh, unfortunately was victimized uh, by a lot of Lana's paramours, a lot of Lana's husbands. Um, you know, there are, there are several points in the book where, you know, poor Cheryl growing up in, you know, Lana's shadow is exposed to things that a, a young child should never be exposed to. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us, if you would, about Johnny Stampanato, his background, how he makes his way to Los Angeles, and how he comes to work for Mickey Cohen. Sure. Johnny Stampanato, born in Illinois, uh, you know, Midwestern upbringing, kind of a, a Lothario and troublemaker in his hometown of Woodstock, Illinois. He gets sent to military school when he's a teenager because he's impregnated, you know, two girls in his quiet hometown. And when he gets to... Um, military school, he kind of does the same thing. So he goes uh, off uh, out of barracks and terrorizes the town and shakes up things with, you know, young girls who think that he's incredibly handsome. Um, he eventually uh, enters World War II, fights through the Pacific campaign, survives, and, and many times he's forced uh, to engage in hand-to-hand -hand -hand combat with the enemy uh, to survive. But he's a, he's, a, he's a hustler and he's a kind of a grifter. Um, stays in the Far East uh, after the war, marries a, a young woman who is Muslim. He converts uh, to Islam and brings her back to the United States. Sarah Utash was her name. And um, Johnny's back in his hometown. She's working at a factory. She's pregnant. He's got a bunch of menial jobs and he's not satisfied. He, you know, also feels like he can be a big star in Hollywood. So he goes to Chicago and um, does what a lot of, you know, young men did at that time and probably still do. You know, he kind of sold his soul and he sold his body to the to the first person that would look his way. And that happened to be, you know, a young, rich uh, member of the British aristocracy who takes uh, Johnny Stampanato to, you know, Hollywood, pays his freight to get out there. And once Johnny's there, Johnny's got two jobs. 
And, you know, during the daytime, he sits by the pool at the Beverly Hills uh, Hotel and and seduces, uh, you know, young actors like Merv Griffin and Liberace and, um, you know, gets them to pay for sex. And at night, he uh, is is lurking the the back alleys and the in the bright lights, uh, hoping to catch uh, Mickey Cohen's eye because he believes that uh, he's strong enough and certainly quick enough with a pistol to protect L.A.'s most feared gangster. So how does he become Cohen's bodyguard? It well, has- that happens by chance, and I think you know Mickey Cohen always had his head on a swivel because Mickey was involved with a gangland uh, war. Uh, you know, against a rival uh, Italian gang, um, you know, back at that time in the mid 40s. And, you know, there are shootouts back and forth that I explain and describe, you know, to great detail in the book. And, um, you know, one night Mickey is at one of his favorite places and Mickey wasn't a drinker. He liked to go uh, drink coffee and have ice cream at a lot of these night spots and certainly traveled with an entourage. And as he did so, uh, the rival gang showed up and, uh, uh, you know, fired bullets uh, not only at the eatery, but certainly uh, fired bullets at, you know, Mickey's entourage and Mickey himself. And Johnny Stampanato just had to be, you know, happened to be there that night trying to court Mickey's favor and then um, really shows his uh, true colors, I guess, you know, in the underworld language by protecting Mickey Cohen when Mickey Cohen is in the hospital after, uh, you know, getting shot and making sure that the killers aren't going to finish the job on Mickey. So Stompanato develops a reputation over time, right, for targeting and seducing older Hollywood actresses. That's right. And uh, and he did so. Um, and he, uh, you know, was in and out of relationships, in and out of marriages, with, you know, B-list, I would say, Hollywood actresses at the time, using them for, you know, financial gain for all that they were worth, abusing them physically because he was a mean bastard. He really was. He was very violent to just about anybody that looked in his direction, but he especially preyed on women. And that made him, you know, the perfect predator uh, to go after somebody like Lana Turner. Right. One of the girlfriends had been Helene Stanley, who had been the live model in in Disney's Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. That's right. You know, and and I was amazed in the research of the book how much of Stompanato's life was written about um, in the newspapers even before he was mentioned in the same breath as Mickey Cohen. Um, you know, they, he was well known because he was attaching himself, you know, to B-list uh, actresses who were looking to get their own press. So anytime, you know, Johnny Stampanato fell in love or got married to one of these actresses, there was a little item written up, uh, you know, by one of the wire services. And, they, you know, I utilized a lot of that for research for this book. And he, he dated Ava Gardner for a bit, who happened to be a good friend of Lana Turner's. Well, that was his in to Lana Turner. You know, Lana Turner did not know who Johnny Stampanato was. In fact, Johnny Stampanato gave Lana a fake name, John Steele. And, you know, now we're going back, Eric, to, you know, Mickey Cohen's uh, extortion plots. You know, Mickey Cohen had survived gangland shootouts. He had survived a bombing of his home in Brentwood. He had survived prison. 
And when he got back to L.A., he was looking to get away from the violence of organized crime, but find new ways to prey on uh, Hollywood talent. So he came up with a scheme of, you know, putting actors and actresses in very compromising positions and extorting them. And, uh, you know, they, Mickey Cohen, you know, saw what Johnny Stompanato represented, somebody that was very handsome and, uh, you know, very brutal and very violent and um, used Johnny Stompanato to get at Lana Turner. So there are other men who come in and out of her life over time. How, how many times is she married? She was, she was married, uh, well, if you include Steve Crane, who she, she was married to twice, she was married four times in between. So Steve Crane, uh, Bob Topping, who was the uh, heir to a, a tin uh, dynasty in New York, and um, the Ho- Hollywood Tarzan Lex Barker, who took over the loincloth from Johnny Weissmuller at the time. And in between those relationships, she had a number of different paramours, including Fernando Lamas, who had physically abused her. You know, Lana Turner had been subject to a great deal of abuse from her boyfriends and especially from her husbands. And Fernando Lamas, by the way, according to your book, had exposed himself to... He exposed himself to Cheryl, um at a swimming pool, and he also, you know, abused and beat Lana. There's a film that Lana did um, ultimately uh, where she's wearing a very thick bracelet, you know, over her wrist, you know, over the course of time because Lana couldn't take it anymore. Lana, you know, tried to kill herself, um, you know, at one stage just because of all of the abuse that um, these men were subjecting her to. And that was before, you know, Lex Barker enters stage left, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And that is really alarming stuff. Really, really difficult to read. And and we don't need to go into into the details here, the the specific details, but but Lex Barker, the, the Hollywood Tarzan, was accused by Cheryl of doing some really horrible stuff to her. Um, you know, and, and, you know, poor Cheryl Crane, you know, was a, is a victim and, uh, you know, my heart goes out to what she's had to endure. And, you know, this was Lana trying to still maintain a career and not necessarily focusing on her family life. And that's, you know, one of Lana's, uh, character traits that, uh, you know, she could have done better for, but, um, but she didn't. And, uh, poor Cheryl was, abused physically by Lex Barker. And ultimately, Cheryl told her mother what had happened. Um, Lana divorced Lex Barker, didn't press charges against uh, the actor at the time because that would have been scandalous. And Lana would have, you know, lost her own career had that happened. So, you know, there are a lot of things that are happening behind the scenes that, you know, people don't know about. Right, right, for sure. So one of the things that plagued Lana throughout her life was her finances. She, she got into trouble with the IRS. Her managers had mismanaged her money. Well, I think her managers mismanaged, but so so did she. You know, Lana spent pretty wildly. She was making a lot of money. She was the highest paid actor or actress in Hollywood at the time. So, you know, she had uh, been accustomed to a certain lifestyle. 
you know, limousines, fur coats, etc. Lana lived, uh, you know, high on the hog in Hollywood and, you know, hadn't been really paying too much attention to her, to her taxes. So um, the IRS, you know, put a really kind of a lien on her contract uh, with the studio. And so Lana had to pay the studio back through a number of different uh, motion pictures that she was forced to appear in. So throughout the war years, she becomes, as you said, a major movie star. And it's interesting that while that is happening, amidst her incredible popularity, at the height of her star power, she's also fallen on the bad side of the studios. Yeah, when you say she's she got on the bad side of the studios, I mean, to me, she was showing her independence. You know, she was a, a female actor, the biggest star in Hollywood, and, you know, was starting to really embrace that and, and flex her muscles a little bit. And I think, you know, she, to me, is a real kind of feminist icon, if you will, that uh, she was putting things into place in the 1940s and 1950s that, you know, a lot of actors today owe her a debt of gratitude for. Lana was the first actor or actress, I should say, to uh, start her own production company. Lucille Ball was the only other actress to do it in the 1950s, and she did so with Desi Arnaz, her her husband or ex-husband at the time. Here's Lana Turner, who understands her value, which the uh, studio certainly did not appreciate, and she was willing to, uh, you know, push back, and that angered a lot of the studio executives at the time. And, uh, you know, she was really, you know, showing her strength and demanding, you know, her independence. And that's something that her, her fellow actor, Judy Garland, never had the opportunity to do. You know, Judy Garland was hooked on drugs and amphetamines from the studio uh, system when she was a teenager, which ultimately led to her untimely death when she was 47 years old. So the studios were preying on these young actors, trying to control them for as long as they could. And Lana Turner just said, you know what? I'm done with this. I want to take my life back professionally. And she was doing that. We will return after these brief messages. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back for the final time. So back to... Lana and Johnny Stompanato. As you said, Cohen decided to set his sights on her, which is a little surprising, right? Because they were friends. Cohen They're and... They were friends, yeah. I mean, Mickey Cohen, uh, you know, held a, a dinner in her uh, honor with Steve Crane, you know, years before. But like any, you know, 
underworld figure or gangster, you know, friendship only goes so far. You know, they, they look at everybody in their lives as a mark. How can they exploit you, the person in front of them? And that's ultimately what uh, what Mickey did with Lana. You know, here was, a, a, you know, somebody that was vulnerable. She had just lost her contract finally at, at MGM, which is why she was starting her own production company. And uh, she was, you know, easy pickings. And she was also flush with cash at the time. She had a lot of money. So why not put her in a compromising position if they could and try to extort her for all she was worth? And that's what um, Johnny and Mickey did. Johnny did it, but he was bankrolled by Mickey Cohen. Johnny was sending uh, Lana Turner boatloads of flowers, bouquets of flowers, chocolates. You know, Lana Turner's favorite music was sent to her dressing room at the studio. You know, Johnny Stompanato didn't have money to do that. That was Mickey Cohen who was funding the operation to get inside Lana Turner's world so that they could ultimately rip her off. And it was uh, Mickey Rooney, correct? Who, who filled her in on what Stampanato really was. Yeah, by that time, Johnny Stampanato was certainly widely known as a gangster in Hollywood. But remember, this is, you know, long before social media, long before the internet, where news traveled still pretty slowly in, in you know, in certain circles. And, and Lana didn't read a lot. Uh, so she was oblivious to most of the underworld uh, happenings in Hollywood. So, you know, Mickey Rooney... And, said, look, at you know, this guy is not Johnny Steele. He's a gangster for Mickey Cohen named Johnny Stampanato. And ultimately, Lana confronts Johnny with his lies. And Johnny, you know, kind of rightfully gives it back to her. So look, at this is Hollywood. It's, you know, it's a town built on lies. Lana Turner's name, you know, Lana really isn't Lana Turner. You know, she was born with another name, much like, you know, Johnny Stampanato was. So he's able to at least get her to kind of understand uh, some of his deception early on in their relationship. Yeah. So the drama accelerates. When she goes to London for a film, she wants to get a break from Stampanato, and he follows her there on Mickey's dime. Yeah. Well, you know, it wasn't just any film role. It was her first film as a producer. Uh, another Time in Another Place was a project that uh, she had been developing for quite some time. And uh, it was about a uh, uh, two uh, correspondents writing about the war during World War II. And she wanted to film it where the story takes place in England. And she cast the film basically by herself and, you know, was the first to cast an unknown Sean Connery uh, as her love interest in the film. And Lana wanted to... Uh, film in England, not only for the authenticity that the you know locale would bring, but she wanted to get away from Johnny Stampanato. And she told him that you're not coming with me. So Lana goes to England and, and starts filming her first production as a producer. And Johnny can't take it. Johnny has to be around her because now Johnny's mentality is starting to shift. He's starting to break away from Mickey Cohen, thinking to himself, you know, I don't want to just extort Lana the way Mickey Cohen does, meaning that Stampanato kind of envisioned himself as, uh, you know, that character uh, Chili Palmer in Get Shorty, a gangster who comes from New York to L.A. and takes over the, the movie business. 
Stampinato thought he could do the same thing. He wanted to be legitimized. He wanted to be a producer. He was um, optioning the rights for screenplays and, and books on his own, hoping that Lana would produce these projects with him. She wanted no part of it. So Johnny got jealous. Johnny got angry. Johnny, uh, you know, got Mickey Cohen to uh, fund a trip to England where Johnny Stampinato, you know, confronted his his girlfriend. And you can imagine what Lana must have felt like like when she saw him for the first time. And I think she tried to appease Johnny over the first couple of days and if not a couple of weeks. Um, but then, you know, Johnny reverted back to his Neanderthal character and uh, very vicious, very violent, uh, you know, beat Lana quite severely when uh, when they were in England. And um, Lana almost ordered Johnny out of the country, and Johnny would not go. The one thing Johnny did was he snuck a, uh, a gun on the plane, and he shows up at the uh, uh, set of Another Time in Another Place, watches uh, Lana Turner and Sean Connery kissing in a scene, and gets violent, gets jealous. And when Sean Connery leaves the set, Johnny flashes a gun. And what does you know, the future James Bond do? Uh, he uh, knocks out Johnny Stampinato, <laughs> uh, throws yes, a punch yes. at him, and, and, and knocks him to the ground. That is a very satisfying like, part of the story. I can't make this stuff up. It's uh, you know when I heard about that story, I was just amazed by it. And uh, you know here's you know young Sean Connery not batting an eye, you know at Johnny Stampinato, this thug with a gun, and you know pulls a move on him and uh, knocks him to the ground. Um, but Johnny does not give up. Even when Johnny is deported from England because Lana Turner got Scotland Yard involved, Johnny Stampinato is the bad penny in Lana Turner's shoe and uh, knows that Lana, after the film is wrapped, is going to spend some time in Mexico to get her head to get her head straight, and he follows her to Acapulco and continues to abuse and torture her. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Here he is. Sean Connery confronting a, a real-life gangster, and then decades later, he's in The Untouchables, uh, battling gangsters again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight, I think, was uh, his character's famous line in that movie. And Sean Connery was a, a real-life tough guy and certainly defended, you know, Lana Turner and protected himself, you know, in that scene, which will hopefully be a great scene in the film adaptation of, uh, of this book as well. Absolutely, yes. So as as all of this is happening, Lana has also given an amazing performance in a critically acclaimed and commercially successful film, Peyton Place. And that leads to a nomination for her as Best Actress. That's right. And the Academy Awards are on um, April 1st. 1958, right? April 1st, 1958, Lana, while she's in Acapulco um, with Johnny, um, you know, is alerted that she's been nominated for Best Actress. And she's up against uh, Joanne Woodward, Deborah Kerr. Lana didn't think that her work in Peyton Place was enough to really warrant the nomination because she doesn't have a lot of screen time. And she was, you know, uh, played a, a matronly character in that film, as opposed to the young, you know, screen sirens that she had been playing for, you know, two decades before that. But she was very excited. It was the greatest night of her life. And it was a night she did not want Johnny Stompanato around at all. 
and told Johnny that, look, you're not coming to the Oscars with me. Um, You're too connected to Mickey Cohen and investors in Lana's production company might not want to put money into her next picture if they knew that Johnny Stompanato had access to that cash. So she takes Cheryl to the awards, which infuriates Stompanato. But despite that, they've had this just magical evening. So they go home, tired and happy, and then here comes Johnny Stampanato being an absolute a-hole, aggressive. He, he, he wants to, to basically control her, uh, dominate her, uh, remind her of who she's dealing with. Yeah, it was, you know, the greatest night of Lana's life. She goes to the Oscars with her daughter, Cheryl, and her mother, Mildred, takes a limo there. And when they get out of the Oscars, the limo is nowhere to be seen. And Lana always believed that Johnny Stampanato paid off the limo driver to leave. So, you know, Lana has to take a cab to the Oscar parties with her daughter and her mother. And at the end of the night, it's still she's not letting anything, you know, deflate her, her amazing night, she gets back to her bungalow, uh, puts Cheryl to bed, enters her bedroom and, um, you know, darkened bedroom. And who's there? Johnny Stampanato in the darkness sitting on a chair. And Johnny Stampanato is enraged, uh, says he feels hum- humiliated, uh, demands that Lana never do this to him again, then beats her over a period of, of several hours. And Lana's been beaten by Johnny a lot. Um, and this was no different, but it was on the biggest night of her life. But then I think something switches in Lana's brain because Johnny not only beats her, but threatens to cut her face, which means that she'll never be able to, you know, sustain a career in Hollywood if she's disfigured in any way, threatens to kill her, which he's done before, but now he's threatening to kill her daughter and her mother. And Lana just can't have that. Yeah, it's it's really gross. He basically terrorizes her all night. And then in the morning, he gives her a, a kiss on the cheek and leaves. Yeah, it's it's sickening. You know, and again, this is, you know, one of the worst human beings I've ever written about. And I've written about serial killers and gangsters. And, you know, Johnny's right up there. He was a vicious animal. Yeah, yeah, he was. So April 4th, three days later, Lana and Cheryl have moved to a new home, and Johnny is aware of this. That's right. You know, Lana, Lana has uh, moved to a mansion right off Sunset Boulevard, uh, North Bedford Drive, 730 North Bedford Drive. Beautiful home. Still there today. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, Hollywood tourists go and check out that locale. Still looks the same as it did in 1958. But I think in, in Lana's mind, you know, the, the night of the Oscars set her future in motion. She knew that Johnny would beat her again because he always did. But the next time he did it, she was going to have to take her life back uh, any way that she could, because now the lives of her mother and daughter had been threatened. So as Lana is moving in all of her belongings, she's also uh, shopping for things for the home and she buys a, a long, sharp steak knife. Uh, the day before, ultimately, the murder of Johnny Stampanato. And I believe that she knew that she was going to utilize that knife as a weapon to uh, take out her tormentor. So how how does it go down that night? He's aggressively confronting Lana once again, right? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a petty argument over, again, one of Johnny Stampanato's other lies that he was, Johnny Stampanato always told Lana he was a lot older than he was, but in fact, he was younger than Lana, which seems ridiculous today, but Lana was really furious about it because in Hollywood, you were looked at as a, a harlot if a Hollywood actress was walking around Hollywood with a, with a young man on her arm. Um, and I referenced that in the book. And um, so there's an argument. And uh, that argument leads to violence. Johnny's going to beat her up again. And uh, suddenly there's an eight-inch blade that enters Johnny's torso and kills him. So what do Lana and Cheryl do? What is the next step? Who do you call in Hollywood in, in 1958 when, when something like that happens? Is, is it the police? Well, well, let's step back for a moment. The first thing you do is you call your lawyer. So Lana did not call police. Lana did call a doctor because, you know, for a moment, Johnny was still breathing. Um, but lawyer, uh, Lana's lawyer, uh, Hollywood fixer named Jerry Geisler. Now imagine he's the Johnny Cochran of the 1950s. He shows up, sees Johnny Stompanato dead in Lana's bedroom, sees the blood, sees the knife, and over the next hour concocts a narrative. Now, he recognizes that if Lana has killed Johnny Stampanato, that she will be brought up on first-degree murder charges, that she will go to trial. You know, it's likely going to be an all-male jury or at least a predominantly male jury. There's the likelihood because of uh, premeditation that she's been beaten over the course of the last year. That doesn't help Lana in a criminal case that actually hurts her. That shows premeditation. So Lana, if convicted of a crime like this, uh, would go to prison, you know, for the rest of her life at best. At worst, she would have been uh, put on death row. Uh, the death penalty was still very much alive and kicking in California and across the nation at that time. So I believe that Jerry uh, Giesler looked at 14-year-old Cheryl Crane, this innocent young girl who was in the home at the time, and said, let's put the knife in her hands because if she kills Johnny Stampanato, uh, in an effort to break up a, a, another fight between Lana and Johnny, I can sell that to the authorities as justifiable homicide. And that's exactly what they tried to do. Is this a murder mystery, do, do you think? Is there any question in your mind about who stabbed him? I don't, I don't, think, I don't think it's a mystery any longer um, because, you know, you, you, you look at, first of all, nobody in Hollywood believed Gerald Crane killed Johnny Stampanato, especially Mickey Cohen. He was shocked and uh, angered and certainly, you know, went all around the city looking for Lana Turner. He was going to kill her or use some of his gangsters. You know, he had gangsters patrolling the streets with bottles of acid because if they stumbled on Lana Turner, they were going to splash acid in her face and ruin her career and, you know, disfigure her. Um, you know, one thing, I mean, it was a very, it was an incredible gamble uh, by Jerry Giesler uh, to create this narrative, to sell it to police and then have to sell it to, uh, a, you know, a board of inquiry. You know, before it went to any criminal trial, uh, Lana Turner first had to uh, convince the L.A. coroner's department that it was an accidental murder uh, at the hands of her young daughter, Cheryl. And she performed, you know, valiantly uh, during that inquest. To me, it's the performance of a lifetime. 
for Lana. Meanwhile, young Cheryl is at Juvenile Hall, not knowing if she's going to be brought up on adult charges and put away for the rest of her life. Um, it all does work out, surprisingly, for Lana and Cheryl, but the family of Johnny Stampinato doesn't buy it. They file a wrongful death suit against Lana. They begin taking their own depositions. And the stories of Lana, Cheryl, Stephen Crane, and others aren't matching up uh, to the crime scene. So Stampinato's family lawyers are extremely excited to bring Lana Turner to civil trial, much like Fred Goldman brought O.J. Simpson to civil trial. Um, but Lana, fearing that a civil trial might lead to criminal charges against her, settles it out of court. So to me, that really showcases the idea or substantiates you know, the theory that Lana Turner killed Johnny Stampinato and not Cheryl Crane. But as I said, Eric, I don't look at Lana as a femme fatale. I don't look at Lana as a villainess. I look at Lana as a feminist icon, even a pioneer of the Me Too movement, because she was confronted with a situation where her family was put in grave peril, and she did what she had to do to protect them. So Cheryl Crane is still alive. Cheryl right? Crane is. Uh, she's, she's, you know, she's quite old at this time. I think she might be in her 90s. Um, she wrote her own book. Uh, about this situation and about her whole life called Detour. And it's a very heart-wrenching, well-told story. And she does stick to the well-worn narrative that it was her, not her mother, who killed Johnny Stampinato. And I, I think she did this as a way to protect her mother because the statute of limitations, there is no statute of limitations on murder. And certainly Lana Turner, for the rest of her life, was looking over her shoulder, uh, wondering when prosecutors might dig up this case again and put the handcuffs on her and bring her to trial. Can you imagine that conversation they had with her? You know, she, she's 14. <laughs> and I think a lot of it was Jerry Giesler, you know, convincing her. I think, you know, Lana was convinced by Jerry, and so was Cheryl. I think Jerry Giesler really orchestrated this entire affair. You know, the crime scene was certainly doctored when police got there. Uh, there was no blood in the room, uh, certainly on the bed where Johnny Stampinato may have fallen, not on the carpet. It looked like the walls had been cleaned. Um, so there's, there's a lot of questions as an investigative journalist that look at that. And I said, okay, somebody's not telling the truth. Um, but again, I don't look at that as, you know, Lana Turner being uh, a bad person and killing Johnny Stampinato. I look at Lana Turner uh, doing what she had to do to save not only her own life, but the life of her child. And, you know, the murder, a murder in Hollywood, you know, it does end on a very positive note. Granted, the relationship between Cheryl and Lana is very complex and complicated for the rest of their lives. But I wanted to make sure that the reader understood that, you know, a year after the sensational crime, and it's the biggest Hollywood scandal in the first 50 years of the 20th century, mother and daughter were able to, um, you know, uh, recover from it and not only recover from it, but excel and, uh, and, and certainly um, come out of it victorious. And that's what they did. Well, it's been so much fun having you on and your book is officially out on February 13th, right? Second week in February. Um, it's available for pre-order now at your you know local bookstore, any on online retailer. But it comes out February 13th, right before Valentine's Day. 
So, you know, <laughs> I don't know why the publisher did that, but, you know, anybody looking for a great Valentine's gift for their loved one, yeah, sure, get a, a murder in Hollywood. I, I fully endorse it. But but I will say that there's a lot of relevance uh, to today with what happened in 1958, which is why I wanted to write this. Uh, this is a cautionary tale. And this is about a woman that should be looked at and elevated, you know, as an icon and, and, a, and a hero in my in my eyes. So it's not hard to connect with you, is it? You've, you've got a Facebook page. You're on Twitter slash X. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Instagram, Casey Sherman writes. Twitter, Casey Sherman, one, two, three. I mean, this is my, now my, you know, 17th book, uh, A Murder in Hollywood. Amazing. Um, wow. I've got, I just finished my 18th. I'm working on, starting to work on my 19th. So it's been a prolific 20 years. So anybody that is interested in a murder in Hollywood, certainly go to Amazon or your bookstore and ask for it. Anybody that wants to look at back at some of the other books that I've written that have been turned into major motion pictures, go to my you know Amazon page, just type in Casey Sherman and you can find all the works there. This shouldn't be a film, though. It needs to be a series, right? Well, you know, uh, I'm working with Terrence Winter, who created Boardwalk Empire. He was one of the creative minds of The Sopranos. And at first we were thinking limited series. But, you know, I think Terry really wants to make this as a feature and focus not necessarily on that, you know, that wide landscape of Lana's entire life, but the critical moments that led up to the most notorious scandal in the 1950s. Well, Well, thanks again for being a guest. I've really enjoyed this. No, my pleasure. I appreciate it, Eric. And uh, thank you to all those who are, who are listening today or tonight. And uh, um, I hope you enjoy the book. Again, I have been speaking to Casey Sherman. He is the author of A Murder in Hollywood, the untold story of Tinseltown's most shocking crime. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.